Galatians 5, the last 13 verses, and then we're going to walk through them. And um, we're, we're going to learn how to be free to love by walking in the Spirit. So Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in past time, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So, Father, we just ask for your word to become alive and become the truth that it is in our hearts and lives as we continue to seek you and to love you with all our heart. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter, and it, it, it begins by contrasting what people consider to be spirituality against how God sees spirituality without love. And, and um, you know, he says, if, uh, if I speak in tongues and have not love, I'm nothing but a clinging symbol. Um, and he says in, in verse 3, Paul says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, and I have not love, I gain nothing. And so this is kind of a, well, wait a minute. If I'm loving people and I'm giving them Everything I have, if I give away everything I have, if I submit my body to being burned, it doesn't count as anything. And according to Paul, it doesn't if it's not motivated by love. And, and Jesus says this, greater love has no man than he laid down his life for his brother. Luke, and Jesus says in Luke, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Praise for those who abuse you. So Paul says you can give everything away and even lay down your life. But if you're not motivated by love, if love is not the motive for the actions, the works of our life, remember that's what we've been talking about these last weeks, works versus faith. And the whole problem with the Galatians is that they have bought into a lie that tells them 
that faith in Christ alone by grace is not enough, it is not sufficient for salvation, that it must be accompanied by works of the flesh or by fulfilling the works of the law with circumcision and observing all the holidays and feasts. And so Paul's now, after he's told them, look, you guys are knuckleheads. I don't know why you're believing all this after I've taught you something else. But he wants them to know that there are works that are, are necessary, but the works that are necessary are not works that we concoct in our mind to somehow prove to others and are motivated by one thing, and that's love, love for people. And so verse 13 says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So there is a, today there is an underlying doctrine. It's not infiltrated all the church, but it is entered in some churches to say this, because of grace, because we have freedom in Christ, that if we sin, it's okay because His grace is sufficient for us. And therefore, people are not guarding their heart. They're not guarding their actions. They are continuing to indulge in the things they did before they came to Christ with this misconception that these works of the flesh are okay because of the freedom we have in Christ. And the freedom we have in Jesus is not freedom to sin, The freedom we have in Jesus is the freedom to love people the way that God loved us. And so Paul commands us to love, even though love that we've learned up till now is the inevitable results of faith. So here's something we all should know is true. That because of Jesus living in our hearts, we are able to have compassion and love toward people that we wouldn't have if it weren't for Jesus. Now, I can say that's true in my life. Um, If it was not the love of Christ poured into my heart, there are people that I would probably be rude to, people I'd probably avoid. But there is something about the compassion and the love that God puts in our heart that enables us and allows us to love people Um, in a way that he wants us to love him. So so doing the works of God include loving other people. And so Paul's attack on the law has not been an attack on the commandments. Paul's attack on the law is talking about doing works according to the law for human exhortation. For, um, you know, one of the ways God brings love into our hearts is to remind us of his commands. Um, All these kids back here should know the commands of the Lord. And part of the way that we measure our love, thou shalt not commit adultery. I measure my love for my wife and I measure my love for God by keeping that law. Thou shalt not covet. Um, I measure my love by am I more uh, compelled to want something other people have Or am I more compelled to give what I have to other people? So it's those types of things that the commands of God really are there to help us know how to love. And and to be a a barometer, as it were, or a thermometer, however you want to do it, on how we work in keeping God's law. Because here's, here's the logic of verse 13. 
Paul restates the, the, the foundation of the Christian life, and this is the life given to all of us. You were called to freedom. If you are walking in love of God and allowing God to work in your life, you should be free from all of the stuff that encumbered you before you came to Jesus. Now, I understand it's not like an Instapot. You can just put it in there and turn it on and poof, it's gone. There's a process. For some people, I shared last week, for some people, they get free like that. You know, drug addicts give their heart to Jesus and they're set free immediately. But there's other drug addicts who give their hearts to Jesus and have to go through withdrawals. And so there is a process, and God allows the process in each one of our lives based upon what He knows we need for His freedom to make certain that we do walk in freedom. For some people, instantaneous freedom is enough to keep them free. For other people, it's having to go through a process of breaking the yokes of bondage and remembering how those yokes were broken as a reminder of how we became free and why we are free. And so we have this logic. And so he says, Paul says, you were called to freedom, but we exercise our freedom through loving each other. Verses 13 to 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You should love your neighbor as yourself. But then he goes on to say, but if you bite... And devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. And so there's this twofold command. He gives us a positive and a negative incentive for love. First of all, he says, here's the positive. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, that you love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul's saying this, you can take all those commands, you can take... Thou shalt not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not covet. You can go down the whole list of those Ten Commands, and here's the deal. If you love your neighbor as yourself, the only way you can do that is by walking in the fulfillment of the law. But then he goes on to say this. If, here's the negative part. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So here's his point. If you love one another, you fulfill the whole law. If you don't, you're going to destroy yourselves. And so love is motivated by the joy of sharing our fullness, and works are motivated by the desire to fill our emptiness. So let me say that again. You need, this needs to sink in. This is an important point. Love is motivated by the joy of sharing our fullness. We are full because the love of God dwells within us, and out of that fullness flows rivers of water, rivers of blessing to where we help people. On the other hand, if we're motivated by works, that motivation is to somehow try and fill our emptiness. So if you're motivated by love, you're pouring out. If you're motivated by works, you're trying to get filled up in your own efforts and in your own ways. And the bottom line is this. Paul's saying, if you love Jesus by the Holy Spirit, we're going to look at this more, you are filled with love. And because you are filled with love, you then become a pitcher, a spout, a hose, a resource, whatever you want to call, to pour out love to other people. And you're able to do that in any setting, at any time, um, and it can be expressed in many ways. It can be done at work. 
either with a coworker or with a customer. It can be done in church. It can be done when you go out to eat. It can be done when you go to the movies. There will always be opportunities to pour love out to touch the lives of people. And justice for those who are not filled with the love of God by the Holy Spirit, then the fullness of salvation, they will spend their life trying to fill themselves up um, in order to feel loved, in order to feel like they're being loved. It's, it's, I look at life this way. So now we're getting to Rick's philosophy. Every one of us is a cup. And every one of us, the, what's in our cup is love. People whose cup is full will always have something to pour out. People whose cup is not full, they're always going to look for somebody else to fill their cup. Um, when I do premarital counseling, the, one of the things I talked about is let's make certain because if two people come together and their cup is half full or less, when, when, when you date and you're engaged, um, it's different than when you're married and you live together. If you haven't been married, you had this girl. Um, and so there are a lot of people. I've dealt with couples. I, I had this girl um, who we led the entire family to the Lord. She was in high school. And um, she just wanted to be married. But she wanted to be married because she wanted to be loved. And so she would call me and say, I'm engaged. Will you do our premarital counseling? And she'd come to my office, and we'd sit down, and in about 40 minutes, I'd tell them, guys, you get married for the wrong reasons. So either we work out what's going on in your life right now and get that worked out before you get married, or I can't marry you. So they left my office. Within two weeks, they're broken up. About a year later, I get a call. I'm engaged. Will you counsel us, and will you marry us? She brings him into the office. Within 40 minutes, I know that this is not going to work. I sit down, and I tell him why it's not going to work. Now, if you truly love each other, we can walk through this, and Jesus can take through it, and we can make it work, but I'm not going to marry you right now until we get some stuff worked out. Within one or two weeks, they're broken up. The third time, they broke up in front of me. Yes. The fourth time, she didn't call me. She married the guy. Within two years, they were divorced. She had a child, and he had kids, and they got married. She has spent, um, she has spent the last 15 years trying to find love, when all the time it was right there in Jesus. And I'm happy to say that she has become a part of another church in our community whose whole ministry is to deal with broken women who come out of broken relationships. And the pastors have not only taken her and minister, they've brought her into her home, and she lives in their home. And she's walking the, they're walking her through restoration. But the issue is, all the way back at the beginning, because her love cup was so empty, and his love cup was so empty. They were both trying to get the other one to fill their cup. And they couldn't do it. Because what happens if one person is less than half, the other person is less than half, and this person pull, pours as much as they got into this cup, this person is completely empty. And now they're expecting this person to pour out. 
and then they become completely empty. But when our love is motivated by the love that the Holy Spirit has poured into us, we have an unending source to pour out. When you love somebody, the more God loves you, the more you, I mean, God can't love you anymore, so let me rephrase that. God loves you as much as he's ever going to love you, and he will always love you the same. But the more you learn how to walk under the fountain of, of walking in the Spirit to where your cup is always full, it doesn't matter how much you pour, up, pour out. It will be like the widow's portion of the oil and the flour who ministered to Elijah. She said, I only had enough for me and my son. We're going to bake it and die. And Elijah says, take care of me first, and your pot will never run empty. And it never did. And that's what happens when we love out of the, the fruit of the Spirit as opposed to trying to work to fill ourselves up. And that's what Paul's whole, whole deal is here, is to love the way God loves us. So love is motivated by the joy of, of sharing our fullness. Works are motivated by the desire to be filled or have our emptiness filled. So when it talks about the flesh, it, it actually literally means, in the original language, it literally means ego. So when we talk about flesh, when we say flesh, we think about, you know, anything that, any type of pleasure that are, that, but this is way beyond physical pleasure. This has to go with ego, with the very thing that makes your personality who you are. And so Paul's saying the works of our ego, the works of our flesh, um, and, and when people operate out of their ego, and you've been around, that's why we call them egotistical, you've been around people who operate out of their ego, we know that they always want to draw attention to themselves. They always want to do something that's going to make them feel good about themselves, even if you don't say it, as long as they say it enough about themselves, they feel good enough about themselves. And that's the type of flesh Paul's talking about. So if our love is motivated by egotism, if our love is motivated and even worse would be narcissism, if our love is motivated by that, we are never going to be full. We are never going to have what we need. So, so if it's religious, if our love is religious, or what we call religious spirit, you're going to use... As a Christian, if your love is religious, you're going to use the law to try and love. And if your love isn't religious, if it's irreligious, then you're going to look for other things. You're going to look for, um, you know, drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever, you know, credit card debt, food, whatever it is. You're going to do something to try and fill yourself. So if you're not saved... And, and you don't understand love, you're going to consume everything you can find to try and fill that emptiness. If you are saved, but you don't fully understand the fullness of freedom and walking in Christ, you're going to try and fill yourself up with religious activities to try and feel loved, loved by God. Again, most people do what they do in those settings because they feel like they need to do more to prove to God that they were worth what God did. And there's nothing you can ever do to prove to God that, he, that, that you're worth what he did because you'll never be worth it. If, if what Jesus did was based upon our worthiness, he'd still be a spirit in heaven and would have never come down and put on skin. He came knowing that none of us would ever be worthy for what he was about to do. But he did it because he knew his worthiness was enough for us. His worthiness before the Father 
his perfection before the Father, his sinlessness before the Father was sufficient for us to walk in wholeness. So love is motivated by the joy of sharing out of our fullness. That's why Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, love does not seek its own. Um, uh, when we love, um, we're not enslaved to use things or people to try and fill ourselves up. When, when we understand the love of God in us, we don't have to go and you know, do whatever things we do in the flesh to try and make us feel satisfied. And we don't have to try and use other people to fill our emptiness because love is an outflowing, it's not an intaking. True love flows out. True need takes in. If we understand fully the love of God, then our we, we are constantly pouring out. So God fills the emptiness of our heart with forgiveness, and he helps guide us with hope. And because we're full, this frees us from the bondage to accumulate things and to manipulate people. We can simply love people the way God loves them. And when God is our portion, then we're free, and we serve one another through love. And, and you can measure. You, you can do a self-assessment without being self-righteous, of how much of God's love is in you by the way you love people that you wouldn't normally love. You know, it's easy to love your spouse most of the time. It's easy to love your kids some of the time. No. Um, it's, it's easy to love the people that you already love. It's really easy for me to love everyone in this room. You know, I mean, it's just, it's my heart, it's my family, it's my community. But how do I love when I go outside and there's somebody who comes the measure in a way that is unlovable? That becomes the measure of our love. Not that we overlook what they've done or who they are, but the fact that we can love them in spite of that and love them through that. So, and that's when, you know, Jesus says, and, and Paul repeats what Jesus taught us and what the, what the law says, that we love our neighbor as ourself. And understand, to love your neighbor as yourself is not a command to love yourself. Let's, let's don't misconstrue that. It's a command to take your natural, existing love of self and make it the measuring rod or the means of your love for others. So here's how you'll know how well you love yourself in God's view of how we love ourselves. And that is how you love other people. If, so love for ourself is measured by what pours out and how we love other people. It's not measured by egotism. It's not measured by me, 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 me. It's measured by how much of me is poured out. And so, um, I, and I don't think personally... I don't think there's a harder command in the Bible than this one. To love others as you love yourself. Because the reality is that, that we want to feed the hungry people as much as we want to feed ourselves when we're hungry. Um, we want to, you know, we want to find um, our neighbor a job because we're glad we have a job. We want to help a person that has a flat tire um, because we're glad our tire isn't flat. 
You know, we want to we want to share Christ with our neighbor as much as we're glad to know Jesus ourselves. So in other words, we use all the creativity and energy to do good things for others that you would use to help yourself. So if your tire is flat and you know how to change a tire, you're going to change your tire. But somebody else's tire is flat and they're on the side of the road. Love says, stop, help your neighbor, and change their tire. Remember when Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself, the, the Pharisees responded, well, who's my neighbor? If I'm to love my neighbor as myself, who's my neighbor? And Jesus told him the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and in Jesus' parable, their neighbor was the sect of people that Jews despised. So Jesus says your neighbor, the one you're to love or yourself, is the guy that you don't love right now. It's the people you don't love right now. And so when we walk in this, we care about what happens to others, listen close here, as much as we care about what happens to us. That's how you love others as yourself. If you care enough about others to the same magnitude that you care about yourself. In other words, how do you care for yourself when you're hungry? Are you willing to care for others to the same magnitude? How do you care for yourself when you're cold? That's why Jesus said, you know, when he judges the nations in the, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, he said, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me water. When I was sick, you didn't visit me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And the response of the goats was, well, Jesus, if we had saw you thirsty or naked or hungry or in jail, we would have definitely done something. But Jesus said, as much as you did not do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And so our love is measured by this. When we love others as ourself, we are saying, I will feed someone to fullness in the same way that I'd feed myself. I will clothe somebody in warmness in the same way I would clothe myself. I would do whatever I would do for myself as much as I can, I will do for others. That is the measure of love. That's the measure of the Spirit of God working in us. Those are the types of works that Paul says are the works of love and are not the works of the flesh. Those which flow out of us loving people as we love ourselves. And so, and Paul says, here's, here's the problem. Here's, here's the antithesis of this you have to be careful about. There's, there is a tragic alternative to love, and it is watch out that you don't consume one another. So when you don't operate out of love, a, a church that does not truly love each other will eventually destroy itself. Because what happens, and I've walked through this before, what happens is people love themselves, they love their opinions, they love their perspective more than they love their brothers and sisters. And therefore, they fight for what they want as, opposing, as opposed to loving one another and finding a place where God can use all our differences to the glory of his name. That, that is one of the reasons why I am ecstatic. And yes, this is ecstatic for Rick, just so you know, okay? <laughs> yeah, take a picture. 
why I'm ecstatic that the churches in Azusa have come together and it's not vocabulary coming out of my mouth anymore. It's now coming out of their mouth that there's only one church in Azusa. You know, the Bible says uh, there's one body but many parts. You know, and a finger cannot do what a toe does and an ear can't do what a mouth does. And these different churches, different ministries are realizing we are um, a body of many parts but a community of one. And therefore, each one of us has resources to offer to the community that will build the body of Christ. And that's what this is all about. People who don't do that, communities that don't do that, end up being in competition. Pastors don't fellowship. Um, they become threatened. You know, they have a goal. You know, we're going to have this year in 2020, so we want... Uh, 220 people on Sunday mornings by the end of this year. And so their compulsion is, what can we do to fill 220 chairs every Sunday morning? Not how can we feed 20 people. Not how can we love, you know, this many, but how can we do? And so I love that Azusa is in the process of becoming. And I say process because there are still churches on the outside looking in. Um, and it's interesting how, I don't know what word to use except guilt. So when I send the emails out, I invite all the pastors in the city, send them all the email, invite them to lunch. We're going to buy your lunch at Marie Calendars, and we're going to share with you. And, and uh, there's, there's these things we want to do at the Church of Azusa. Those who don't show up, a few days later, I start getting emails with excuses on why they can't come. We're for you, but we can't be there. And, but I will say this. I've never gotten responses from them before, so that tells me something's going on inside to where they feel like they now have to justify why they're not a part, whereas before they just, before they just said, trash. So, and that's a process. We'll be in that process of moving. Do we all have the same theology? Um, all of us who are part of this community swim in the same river. And that is the river that salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. And that the word of God is the authority of word of God. Now in that, we have different streams. You know, some of us swim in a liturgical stream. Some of us swim in a, in a free worship stream. Some in a Pentecostal stream. Some in a cessation stream. But all our heart, he is the son of God. He is, you know, born of a virgin. So we cover everything. Everybody who's not a true believer in Jesus cannot say, I want to be a part of. We simply say, if you want to be a part of, then you have to believe this completely. And so in this process, so once we've loved, we, we need to learn how to walk in the Spirit, is what Paul's saying. Look at if you want to do works that are works that are not there to fill you up, but works that are there to truly love people, he says the only way you can do that the only way, there's not multiple choice here. There's only one way you can fulfill the work of the Spirit, and that is by walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. Here's what he says, verses 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, 
and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So he's talking, he's still talking about doing works. But he's talking about doing works that are led by the Spirit as we walk by the Spirit as opposed to, to uh, works that are driven by the flesh. And so we're not called to live this Christian life by ourselves. Um, to me, that is an oxymoron. There is a no, absolutely no way you can fully walk in who God has called you to be by isolating yourself, by not having community, by not being there for one another. Um, so we must live community by the Spirit. So love is what happens when we freely walk in the Spirit, when we freely walk by the Spirit. Trying to love without relying on God's Spirit um, attempts, again, to fill our emptiness as opposed to sharing our fullness. And it's at that moment that love ceases to be love. Love is love when it's poured out. Love is not love when it's used to fill us up. Now, when two people love each other, truly love each other, and they truly walk in the fullness of the love of God in their lives, um, we are part of the contributing factor to filling each other's love cup up at, at simultaneously. So in other words, and, and here's the thing, the times when one of you feels kind of, that's why community is so important, because the days when one of you can, feels kind of, I mean, this family that is contending for their little baby girl to come back to life. Okay, right now, that they're, at a, they're at a questioning point. They're at a believing point. But what's happened is love is surrounding them and filling them up because people are pouring out. Nobody's pointing fingers and going, well, what sin was there in your life for God to take your baby? You know, that's not what community does. Community pours love in, pours love in, and community prays, your kingdom come, your will be done, Father, and we're there to love and rejoice either way. If the baby comes back to life, there is joy. If the baby does not come back to life, the fruit is still joy because joy comes out of community, believing with one another, praying for one another, comforting one another. Blessed are those who comfort, for they will be comforted. Um, and so that's part of the community we walk in. A lot of times we don't have answers to the wise. The only answer is God. Somebody says, why? I just say God. Because that is the answer. And so there's two Two images here in the context of what Paul's talking. He says, first of all, to walk by the Spirit. So if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. He emphasizes the Spirit's work, not ours, by the Spirit. Let this sink in. If you are led by the Spirit. To be led means that we are following which means where we go and what we do is not of our own creation and not of our own decision. Paul says if we are led by the Spirit, what will, fall, what will flow out of that following is love because the Spirit will fill us up and take us to the places where love can be manifest. It's when we try and get in front of the Spirit and we try to walk our own road complete our own journey, do our own thing, 
that pretty soon we end up in territory that we don't know how to get out of. And so, um, and if the Christian life looks hard, which I know it doesn't look hard for anybody in here, okay, but here's the thing. The reason the Christian life is hard, more, harder for some than others, the ones who have a real hard time with the Christian life are not surrounded by community. It is community that lifts the burden. It is community that helps us together walk through what needs to be done. It is community that is the Aaron and the her in everybody's life. When we can't hold our arms up for victory to come, they come alongside and they hold our arms up until the victory is won. And so that's why, you know, Paul, when he says this, he's really quoting what Jesus had already taught. And I don't know if Paul ever heard this teaching. Um, he may have heard whispers of it because I don't know if Paul ever sat around and listened to Jesus teach. But here's what Jesus said. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And the fruit we're talking about here is love. Jesus is saying, you cannot love unless you abide in my love. Since God is love, and this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us first and gave his life for us, if we are truly going to pour out the love of God, we do so by abiding in Jesus. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So apart from abiding in the love of God demonstrated through Jesus, Jesus says, we are not able to produce fruit. The fruit that we are called to produce is the fruit that is the result of the outpouring of the love that Jesus has poured into us that we're pouring into other people's lives. And Jesus said, without me, you can't do anything. Without me, you can't love people. Without me, if you serve people, you're all the way back to what Paul said. If I give everything I have and I submit my body to be burned and I don't have love, if I don't have Jesus, it doesn't accomplish me a thing. There are a lot of philanthropists today that is going to buy them any reasons and wrong reasons. None of that is going to buy them any points with God. The only way we get credit with God is through Jesus. We come to him through Jesus. And whatever flows out of the love of Jesus being poured into us, whatever flows out of that, that is where God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Because God's measurement of our love is not based upon quantity, it's based upon faithfulness that flows out of obedience. And if you're called to pour your entire life into one person, if you spend your whole life loving one person that keeps breaking down, you keep loving them, they keep breaking down. If that's all you do and you stand at the end and you go, Lord, what have I done? And the Lord says, because you were faithful in the little things, I'm going to make you ruler over many things. You see, God does not measure our faithfulness by quantity by the amount of work we do, God measures our faithfulness by the amount of love we pour out. Let that sink in. God is not going to judge our faithfulness by how much we did. God is going to judge our faithfulness by how much we loved. 
And there is a big difference. And so what we keep, you know, walking the Spirit means to abide in the vine. Don't cut yourself off from the flow of the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself securely united to living with Christ, to living with Jesus. And so why is it crucial to walk in the Spirit? Um, first of all, we walk in the Spirit. Paul says we do this because when we walk in the Spirit, we're not tempted to gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 20, chapter 2. We went over this, but I'm going to read it to you again. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The flesh, again, is the ego which feels an emptiness which feels an emptiness, but hates the idea of satisfying it by faith. You see, what is faith? The substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen, which is the complete antithesis of works. Because works is based upon what we can see, touch, smell, and do. Faith is based upon what we can't see, what we can't touch, what we can't smell, but because God's called us to do it. So flesh prefers to use legal, legalistic or immoral resources in its own power to fill its emptiness. Paul says this when he writes to the Romans. He says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. So there is a war in all of us. It's the war between the flesh and the war between God's spirit. And so a Christian is not a person who experiences no bad desires. You can love Jesus and still have bad desires. You're still tempted, okay? We all experience struggles. Paul says, ah, why does the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I want to do, I don't. Flesh versus spirit, back and forth. A Christian is a person who is at war with those desires by the power of the spirit. So we can try and fight him in our own strength, or we can try and fight him by the power of the Spirit. There was a young man that was counseling a few months ago who was struggling with drugs. And I sat him down and I said, look it, you will not be set free. He knows about Jesus and eventually accepted Jesus. He says, you will not be set free until you submit to a community that by the Spirit is going to help you walk in freedom. And he looked me in the face and said, I don't need the community. I'm strong enough. I can do this on my own. And I wasn't the only person saying this to him. But he was convinced that he didn't need community to help him walk in freedom. He was convinced he could do it on his own. Did he find freedom? I think he's finding freedom right now. But I think he's in community. I think he's surrounded by people who are helping him. And so just know there are no lone rangers. Every body is supposed to have a tanto or a whole crew of tantos walking with us. So the spirit has landed to do battle with the flesh. So we take heart if our soul feels like a battlefield at times. We are going to have bad days. We're going to have days when the enemy just pounds and pounds and pounds. 
And that's why our life is not the war in us. So, so the main point of our life is not the war. The main part of our life is victory in the Spirit. See, when we walk by the Spirit, we don't let those bad desires come to maturity. The new God-centered desires crowd out the old man-centered desires. And so if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Again, Paul says in Romans 8, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be filled in us, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It says God condemns sin in the flesh as a requirement for us to understand there is a way to walk in freedom, but it's not the flesh because the flesh is condemned. So when we're led by the Spirit, we're not under punishment of the oppression of law. What the law requires, the Spirit produces, which is namely love. And the Spirit conquers all the emptiness that drives the flesh and spills out in acts of love, which will fulfill the law. So what is the secret to walking in the Spirit? For me, the secret is, and I hope it is for you too, to meditate on the Word of God. David says this in Psalm 119, and you all know this verse. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So um, I love reading biographies of great heroes of the faith because they build my faith. You know, it used to be I would read those biographies and think, oh, my goodness, I'm never going to be that person. But the reality is I don't need to be that person. I need to be this person. Because it's the same Jesus and it's the same faith and we'll see the same results only in the context in which God has us love people. But George Mueller um, ran orphanages in England. He was a man who never, ever, ever asked for one penny. He, he built orphanages. He fed orphans simply by praying and believing God. If you read his, his autobiography, I mean, there were days he would get up, have all the kids in the orphanage and there was no food. I mean, nothing. No milk, no bread, no cheese, nothing. The kids would come down for breakfast, and he'd say, okay, kids, there's no food today. We need to pray for God to bring food. And while they're praying, there's a knock on the door, and the guy driving the milk cart, his cart broke down out in front of his house, and he's not going to be able to deliver the milk. Can I give you guys the milk and give, <clears throat> give you guys the cheese and the butter that's on my truck? And that's how George Mueller lived his life. If you read his life story, he never, ever asked for one penny. He built multiple orphanages. And after he died, accountants came in and did um, an assessment, an audit of all the books, of all the orphanages that he owned and all ministries he did. And the biggest giver in the ministry of George Mueller was George Mueller. This man trusted God so much, every penny he ever got, he poured into the orphanage, and nobody ever knew until after he died. But here's what he says um, in uh, his autobiography. This is about meditating on the Word of God. He says, I keep a little scrap of paper by my prayer bench. How many of you have a prayer bench? And whenever I read a promise that can lure me away from my guilt and fear and greed. So a guy who never asked for a penny was overcome with guilt, fear, and greed. I write it down. 
Then in dry spells, I have a pile of promises to soak my soul in. The fight of faith is fought with the promises of God. The fight of faith is the same as the fight to walk by the Spirit. He works when we're resting in His promises. So George Mueller learned the secret of what it meant to walk in the Spirit was to meditate on the Word of God. Meditate on truths of the Word of God until your heart is happy by resting in His promises. Hudson Taylor is another great guy, a missionary to China, again, who was called and went there, and, and the greatest ministry, probably the greatest evangelical ministry in the history of China was through the ministry of Hudson Taylor. And in his book, Spiritual Secret, it, it, and it's not his book, it's, it's a book written about him, it says this, Hudson received word one day of writing near one of the inland mission stations. This is in China. In a few moments, George Nichol, one of his evangelists, overheard Taylor whistling his favorite hymn, Jesus, I am resting, resting of the joy of what thou art. So when there was writing that could overflow into their mission station and cause them to be arrested, he was singing a hymn, whistling a hymn about resting in the joy of the Lord. And he learned that resting and rejoicing in the Lord under all circumstances was walking in the Spirit. That's how we do it. So what are the works of the flesh and what are the fruit of the Spirit? And Paul lays it out for us. He says this in verses 19 through 26. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. <clears throat> I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying, envying one another. So <clears throat> there are some sins, Paul, he calls them the sins of the flesh. But again, we're talking about ego here because they are not sins of the flesh. Uh, strife, enmity, jealousy, anger, envy, those aren't things that happen here. But those are things that flow out of ego. Um, and so, so what it does is it craves the sensation of a self-generated power that loves the praise of men. Uh, it also, in, in a more literal form, produces immoral attitudes and acts. Um, and, and it is... There are all sorts of things which motivate people. Greed will motivate people to do things that... Um, I read an article yesterday about... I think it's up to 15 now. 15 former NFL football players who made millions of dollars um, were arrested yesterday for defrauding the, the, the insurance companies out of medical. They would, they would file false claims for... 
MRI machines. And they would get like $100,000 for this machine through this guy who set up the fraud, and they put the money in their pocket. And we're talking about well-known former football players. 15 to 20 of them got arrested. How do you do that? There's only one motivation. It's greed. It's definitely not the work of the Spirit in somebody's life. And so uh, Paul calls the products of our flesh works, and he calls the product of the Spirit fruit. So it's do we want fruit to be the measurement of what we do, or do we want our works to be the measurement of what we do? So the works of the flesh are effortless for the as effortless for the natural man as the fruit of the grace for the spiritual man. And so the flesh doesn't know anything of grace. Okay, um, it doesn't think of its satisfaction as a free gift from a merciful God. The flesh doesn't think. And instead, it thinks of them as debts that they somehow need to work and pay back. And everything it produces is flavored by the mentality of merit, which we call works. And the mentality behind the fruit of the Spirit is faith dependent upon grace. So people who bear the fruit of the Spirit know that they are worthy of condemnation. We know that we are worthy to be condemned. We know... Um, that the only pay that could be paid for our condemnation was God's wrath. But here's the thing. Jesus took that condemnation upon himself. Jesus took God's wrath upon himself. And so he paid the price for us. So even though we're worthy of condemnation, and even though we're worthy of the payment of God's wrath because of our sin, Jesus took care of that for us. So we who bear the fruit of the Spirit have turned away from self-reliance and look only to the mercy in Christ. Again, back to Galatians 2. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we don't expect anyone to be our debtor because of our worth. Um, you know, any satisfaction that we have is a free gift of grace. And so out of the mentality of faith, depending on how grace grows, not works, but fruit. And so here's the fruit. And understand, and you've heard this before. I just want to remind you, it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's not a bowl of fruits. There is one fruit of the Spirit, and it is multifaceted. It is multidimensional. And the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's like biting into an apple, pear, peach, apricot, grape, watermelon, all in one bite. But it's one fruit. You know, my dad used to cross-pollinate, or I don't know how you call it, but he when he lived in the desert, he took branches of two different fruit trees, grafted them into one tree, and produced, um, he had a plum cot tree that produced a fruit that had the size and color of a plum, but the skin of an apricot. When you bit into it, it had the texture of an apricot, but it tasted like a plum and an apricot. And he also did a pear apple tree. So, I mean, you can do that, but not as Think of a 27 fruits into one and you bite into it. And that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's all of those flavors in one, and those are poured out by love. These list of virtues um, shows it's not our outward life, but it's our heart that produces fruit in our outward life. So to help you understand this, because for most of us, the issue is not, yes, I know what the fruit of the Spirit is. The issue of my life is not the fruit of the Spirit. The issue of my life is the war going on in my life. And how do I kill this beast? 
And so I wrote this little scenario here, and we'll close with that. So picture this mentality of merit craving for power and self-reliance as a beast that lives in a cave of your soul. And that beast, however you want to picture it, a dragon, a kraken, a leviathan, whatever you want to picture, that's what's living inside of you. You could just say a devil, okay? And in the gospel, Jesus comes to you, and this is what he says. I will make you mine and take possession of the cave and slay the beast. Will you be my possession? It will mean a whole new way of thinking, feeling, and acting. And we respond and say, but Jesus, the beast is me. If you kill the beast, you're going to kill me. And Jesus says, yes, you will die, but you will rise to newness of life, and I'll make my mind and my will and my heart your own. So my response is, okay, what do I have to do? What do we do to do that? Jesus says, trust me, do as I say. And you're at George Mueller's prayer bench. Me, you can't lose. So this is when you're at George Mueller's prayer bench and you're picking up his pieces of paper and you're reading his promises. So we are overcome by the beauty and the power of Christ. And so when we had that revelation by the Holy Spirit of who Jesus is, you know, we rise up and we say, he puts his sword in our hand and he simply says, follow me. And he leads us to the mouth of the cave and he tells us, you have my sword. What's, what's God's sword? Word. Go ahead, go into the cave, take the sword, slay the beast. And so you look and you go, okay, but I ain't going without you. You know, I, I, the cave's dark, the beast is big, and I just got a sword, so I need you to come with me. And Jesus says, you're right, you've learned quickly. Never forget, my commands for you to do something are never commands to do it alone. So everything Christ has called us to do, he's called us to do with him. Not him with us, us with him, or being led by the Spirit. So, we enter the cave. A battle follows. You feel Jesus' hand on your hand as you hold the sword. And at last, that beast lies limp on the floor. You've taken the sword. You've pierced it. You see it's still kind of breathing. And you ask God, is it dead? And this is what Jesus tells us. I've come to give you a new life. This you received when you yielded to my possession and swore faith and loyalty to me. And now with my sword and my hand, you've wounded the beast of the flesh. It's a mortal wound. It will die, but it has not yet bled to death. And it may yet revive with violent convulsions and do a lot of harm. So you must treat it as dead, seal the cave as a tomb. The Lord of darkness may cause earthquakes in your soul to shake the stones loose, but you build them up again. And you have this confidence. With my sword and my hand on yours, this beast's doom is certain and your new life is secure. So there's always going to be a shaking that's going to release a battle in our life. 
How we fight that battle is based upon how the Spirit of God lives in us. If we walk in love, if we walk in faith, then we remember that it is by meditating on the Word of God that we have the sword of the Spirit in our hand, which is the Word of God, that we are able, by the promises of God and the Word of God, when the beast tries to raise its head again, how many of us can say, yes, I've been saved, but the devil still gives me some... That cave, that tomb gets shaken and stones start to roll away and that sucker sticks his hand out and tries to grab me. And my job is to take my sword and to cut his hand and put the rocks back on there and to know that there's going to come a day when it's completely dead and we walk in complete freedom and that's when we're in a new body, in a new place, living in an eternal kingdom. So Jesus has taken possession of our soul when we gave our heart to him. The old self has been dealt a mortal wound, stripped of its power to have dominion over us, but it still tries to make our life miserable. The Christian life, the fruit of the Spirit, is a constant reckoning of the flesh as dead, the stones in the tomb. We're constantly having to die to ourselves, And the difference between the Christian life and American mortality is this. We're not going to take one step so unless the hand of Jesus holds the hand that wields the sword of righteousness. We all know, and let you walk out with this one thought, the moment we say, I've got this, and we pick up the sword on our own and think we can go take care of that hand that's sticking out of the cave is the moment it grabs us by the throat and tries to pull us back in. We cannot do it without Jesus. And we cannot be with Jesus if we don't meditate on his word. We don't have a prayer bench. And we're not there every time we get discouraged to go back and pull these promises up. To pull them up. However that comes up, to pull them up. That way we are led by the spirit. And the outpouring of our life becomes the fruit of the spirit. Thus ends chapter 5. All right. And I know we went 15 minutes over. I apologize, but we started 15 minutes late, so we're even. I know. I know. So Jesus, set your seal upon our heart. Set the stones of seal upon that, that beast that tries to pull us down. And may we walk in the fullness of the authority of your word with your hand wrapped around our hand as we carry your sword and that the fruit of the Spirit would flow out of us in love as we are your hands and feet and voice in this day and this hour. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.